When it comes to treating hair loss, doctors have limited options. There are FDA-approved medications we use to slow down hair loss and sometimes turn thin hairs into thicker hairs. We have hair transplantation, where we physically move hairs from one area of the body to the other. We can try vitamins and supplements, usually of minimal benefit. And then there's a whole realm of alternative therapies, mostly not FDA-approved or cleared, and most fall into the category of regenerative medicine. Patients need to know that there are charlatans who promote treatments purely for profit, so it's critical when seeking these treatments to find ethical experts. When it comes to regenerative medicine, in the field of hair restoration, there's one person recognized as the top expert in the world, and that's Dr. Jerry Cooley. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Haber, hair loss expert and hair transplant surgeon from Cleveland, Ohio. Join me and the Hair Transplant Roadshow as I travel the globe seeking answers to important surgical and non-surgical hair loss questions from the true experts in the field. And so today, the Hair Transplant Roadshow heads to Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, where my guest today is Dr. Jerry Cooley, director of the Cooley Hair Center. Jerry has built almost a cult following of international admirers in the field of hair restoration due to his early adoption of new technology, products, and techniques, and his meticulous surgical approach and remarkable results. If a new treatment is introduced at a meeting, Jerry is usually introducing it. He's the MacGyver of non-surgical hair loss management while also being a gifted surgeon. Jerry is a fellow member of the ISHRS, is certified by the American Board of Hair Restoration Surgery, he has served the ISHRS on the Board of Governors and as President, and for three years as editor of the Hair Transplant Forum International, the leading journal in our field. Jerry served as chair of one of the ISHRS World Congresses. He is a winner of the Golden Follicle Award given to one surgeon in the world each year for their clinical accomplishments, and has been a featured lecturer at meetings all over the world, and has contributed to many articles and textbooks in our field. So there's really no one else more qualified to discuss the role of regenerative medicine as a treatment for hair loss. It's a pleasure to have my good friend, Dr. Jerry Cooley, on the show. Hi, Jerry. Hey, Bob. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Just to make a small correction, I was winner of the platinum follicle, not the golden. I'm, I stand corrected. Uh, very good. <laughs> I just wanted to get the, the record uh, straight there. Uh, I apologize for that. But thank you. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. And uh Obviously, mutual admiration here. I uh, admire everything you've done in the field, and uh, I feel like maybe the introduction was a little over the top, but uh, I'll take it. Everything is true. I had to say everything I said was true, except the mixing up the, the, the follicle awards. Jerry, tell us a little bit about your practice in Charlotte, North Carolina. Well, I set up the practice here about 26 years ago, and initially I started out practicing general dermatology as well as hair restoration. And over time, the hair restoration took over. And so I've been pretty much full-time hair restoration for the last 15 years. Great. And uh, I have visited your office, as you know, so I've stood next to you as you operate. Uh, so I, I, can, I can attest to the, the meticulous, meticulous work that happens in your office. So getting to our topic, you know, a big problem that we face as hair loss experts is the very limited therapeutic arsenal. Doctors treating infections have dozens if not hundreds of antibiotic choices. There are endless treatments for high blood pressure and psoriasis and other disorders, but we have exactly two FDA-approved medicines to choose from for hair loss, topical minoxidil and oral finasteride. That's it. 
And that's not enough. And that's why people like yourself are constantly seeking other choices for our patients, and that can lead us to the category of medicine known as regenerative medicine. Jerry, what exactly is regenerative medicine? So regenerative medicine, to me, is a very general concept that encapsulates a variety of different techniques and products designed to tap into the regenerative potential in the body. Uh, the way I describe it to people is the body has different potentials depending on the instructions that it's given. And many times, unless it's given the proper instructions, it will head down the scarring pathway. But it also has an innate a potential to go down a different pathway called the regenerative pathway. Now, the layman may uh, think of this as regenerating brand new organs, and that's really not what we're talking about. We're talking about maximizing the healing response. We're talking about inhibiting scar formation. We're talking about stimulating new blood vessels. We are talking about, in the case of using it with hair transplants, maximizing the body's ability to take in the graft, repair any damage, help it incorporate into the recipient area, and get maximal growth. Uh, regenerative medicine involves everything from growth factors, stem cells, other injectable products that also stimulate the regenerative response. I believe it also covers putting our grafts in special holding solutions, having the patients spray on liposomal ATP after the transplant to maximize growth. So to me, it's an umbrella for a variety of tools, techniques, products that are based in biological sciences and, again, tap into the body's regenerative potential and move us in the direction of regeneration instead of scarring. You know, more primitive creatures, starfish and whatnot, you can cut them in half or cut an arm off and the whole thing regrows. I think the only part of our bodies that really has great natural regenerative potential is the liver, where you can cut out a good part of the liver and it actually uh, regrows as a fully functional or organ. Most of our organs can't do that. So we need some, some help to harness that, as you say, the potential for regeneration, because there's nothing better than growing a real new hair follicle or a new, you know, liver cell or kidney cell or whatever it is that we would like to regenerate. Uh, right. Can you, what, what would you think is the most effective regenerative medicine treatment that's currently available to us as hair loss doctors? That's a tough question for me to answer, Bob. Um, you may be surprised that I don't immediately have one thing at the top of my list because in my mind, one product does one thing, another product does another thing, and they sort of fit into little categories. And I'm always looking for something better within that category. Uh, so for example, I'm a huge fan of A-Cell, which is an acellular product derived from porcine urinary bladder matrix. I think it does a wonderful job for what it can do within its category. I use it like fertilizer. I put it on the grass. I believe it stimulates angiogenesis. 
I believe it activates stem cells, and if there's any injury to the graft, it can help repair that graft. Uh, I believe it inhibits scarring. So within that category, I love A-cell. As a standalone product to thicken hair, um, I like using exosomes. I used to use platelet-rich plasma. Uh, am I lo always looking for something better? Absolutely. Um, to me, it's always a work in progress. Um, I think it's always going to be that way and that it's sort of like computer technology gets better every year. I think regenerative medicine technology continues to improve our own understanding based on bench research carried over into the clinic. It's always evolving. We're trying new things. We're trying to find the best way to do things. Uh, one of my favorite techniques when I do strip surgery, FUT, is to use the fat from the bottom of the strip and to use a machine called Regenera Activa, which will take that, those globs of fat and turn it into a cellular suspension, which is full of adipocyte stem cells, and then inject that into the scalp at the end of the transplant. I've had phenomenal results using that technique. So for that category, Regenera is my favorite product. If you had to force me to pick one product, like you can't use any other product, Dr. Cooley, you, you can only use one of these regenerative products, what would you use? And in my opinion, the post-op liposomal ATP is the one product that I would pick and I would almost refuse to do a hair transplant without it. Uh, and that's been widely adopted. And it's one of the nice things about the liposomal ATP is it's, it's readily available. It's easy to use. It doesn't cost a lot. Uh, and uh, and uh, it's something that I use every day as well. And I, I agree. I think that was a, a game changer. Some of the other products and, and, uh, and approaches are there's a, there's a cost barrier. Uh, they're expensive and we have to pass that cost on to the patients. Yep. And then there are the issues of the FDA and the FDA involvement. I think it's important to probably explain the role of FDA in, in treatments for listeners that aren't aware of that. There are FDA approved treatments are pretty much any drug a doctor can write a prescription for and you fill at a pharmacy. That's an approved uh, treatment. FDA cleared treatments are usually devices like insulin pumps and lasers and, and many other items. Then there's on-label treatments, which means the treatment has been used for the disorder it was approved for. For instance, oral minoxidil for blood pressure. Off-label means the drug is being it was approved by the FDA for one thing, but we're using it for something else, like oral minoxidil for hair loss. And finally, there are what we call experimental treatments, right? right? Which means the FDA hasn't approved it or cleared it for anything. And some of the things I think that you mentioned fall into that experimental category. Exosomes, for instance, which hold great promise, currently aren't FDA approved for anything. We're hoping for FDA approval for something so it could become an off-label treatment. Yeah, so uh, just a brief word on the exosomes. There are There is currently an exosome product which is undergoing two FDA trials as treatments for COVID. And so by the end of the year, they may be officially FDA approved for the treatment of COVID and can then be used off-label. Um, just to address this issue of what we do in relation to the FDA. In my opinion, the FDA has a tough job. On the one hand, they don't want to 
allow products on the market that are not safe. They want to protect the public. On the other hand, they get a lot of criticism from certain patient groups that they are too slow and restrictive about the approval process. They don't allow a lot of products, innovative new products that may have a small market um, that the barriers that the FDA puts up are too high. So I personally believe the FDA intentionally allows this gray zone. And I think exosomes fit within that gray zone. They, uh, on the one hand, are going to come down very hard on doctors and clinics that use fraud in marketing, that overpromise in their advertising, and especially if they have any complications or bad outcomes, they're going to come down hard on those doctors and clinics. On the other hand, I think they actually want doctors to do some innovation and to use certain products safely. For example, the exosome or extracellular vesicle product that I use meets all the criteria for the 361 category of the FDA code. The FDA has spent uh, nine days in this company's uh, laboratories looking for anything they could find that would be against their rules to shut them down. They meet all of the requirements for tissue banking. And so I feel completely comfortable using that product. However, I respect my colleagues who don't feel comfortable using these products because they don't have official FDA approval. Um, I Everything I use, I research, I want to make sure it's safe. I'm not going to risk my patient safety or my reputation in my career using something that I think is unsafe. On the other hand, if I wait around to only use FDA-approved products, I'm not going to be using anything. It's a huge problem that we have. Like I said earlier, there are only two things that we can use, yeah. and, and they're just, they don't work for everybody, which is why we and all if you use... Told me, if you had told me 25 years ago that over the next 25 years, you're still only going to have finasteride and minoxidil as the FDA-approved products. Would you have believed that? No, absolutely not. I, mean, I, I would not have believed that. No, okay. I, I thought things were going to be popping every few years. Right. There were going to be things coming down the pipeline, and that just hasn't happened. I mean, there are hundreds of millions of people that will benefit from other treatments. There's a huge financial incentive to the, to the companies to develop right. things. Uh, but the fact that we only have two, you know, when the when patient's sitting in front of you, and this didn't work and that didn't work, and they look at you and say, what else can you do? We have to do something. Thankfully, there are plenty right. of doctors like yourself who offer therapies like this as part of a, you know, carefully considered treatment program. But there yep. are doctors who appear to only offer treatments that are the most profitable. I had a patient come to me last week who was told by a PRP practitioner that he should stop his long-term finasteride and minoxidil, which he was tolerating perfectly fine, and switch to monthly PRP treatments at his office. There was no reason to right. do that. That's unethical. I mean, so how yeah, can patients... That's, that's fraud. That, that's fraud. How can patients find their way to an ethical doctor like yourself and stay away from... Is, is there a warning sign that, that a patient can use to, to figure out who to go to for these off-label or experimental uh, treatments? Well, in my opinion, every patient should do their research. Um, I think over the last couple of years, it's sort of become a dirty word uh, or a dirty phrase, do your own research, uh, when it comes to people trying to learn more about the uh, 
COVID-19 pandemic. I'm in the completely opposite camp. I believe everybody should do their own research. I believe people are smart enough to research these issues as it relates to their own health and their own medical problems. And if they do enough research, they're going to learn about the different treatments and learn about which doctors are offering them. And then they can vet those doctors, research their background, see what their reputation is. I think people need to be very careful and they need to ask a lot of questions. When patients come in and ask me questions, is this FDA approved? I don't mind sitting down and having a long conversation about why I use this, why I believe it's safe, what's my rationale, what are the benefits, what are the risks. It doesn't bother me at all to be questioned. In fact, I encourage that. It's your body, and if I'm going to do a treatment on your body, you have every right to ask me any question that you want. So I guess my advice to people out there is to do your own research. I, I think the most important thing you said was ask the questions. You know, some patients are afraid to ask questions. They just believe, you know, what the doctor tells them. And that's very, very dangerous because not all doctors have the same. It would be great if all doctors had, you know, pristine ethics and motives, but not all doctors do. Uh, and that's true for other topics that, you know, we're covering on this program of how to not have, uh, you know, black market kind of work done, et cetera. But for this sort of work, right. it's, it's very important. There's a lot of uh, there's a, you know, again, we want to use treatments that are going to work. And as you, as you said, I mean, I, I do clinical trials and those are FDA approved things. We follow it by the book. But as you said, if we wait for FDA approval or clearance of some of these things, we're going to be long retired. And you just published an article in, in the hair transplant forum. And you said there are other ways of, of assessing effectiveness. You know, your, your experience and, and comments by respected colleagues. Uh, there are uh, anecdotal results. There are, you know, the, the people that you know and trust. And, and untrust. I'm not sure about something. I call you up. I say, Jerry, tell me about this so-and-so treatment. If you say, Bob, that's that's garbage, then I believe that. If you say, no, I've been using that and it works, that's worth everything to me because you're a trusted colleague. And exactly. the patients don't unfortunately have that same ability because they're looking at the doctor and trusting them. But, but uh, we can't wait for the FD because we've waited our whole careers for more right. FDA approved uh, products. If we get right. to, uh, if we get to, let's talk about. Um, uh, Can I just say a word about yes. evidence-based medicine? Yes, please. So sometimes I get criticized in my talks that I'm only presenting anecdotal information and where are the studies to support what I'm saying. I'm a full believer in evidence-based medicine. It's a pyramid. And at the very top, we have meta-analysis. Below that, we have randomized controlled trials. Below that, we have case series, retrospective studies. Below that, we have anecdotal observations and so on. I believe in that in theory. And I think for certain medical issues like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, medicines that you might prescribe to patients to lower their risk of heart attack and strokes, all of that makes complete sense to me. Unfortunately, in the field of hair restoration, it is almost impossible, I'm not gonna say completely, but almost impossible for the average solo hair doctor to perform high quality randomized trials that actually meet all the criteria for a well done study. 
So instead, what we've done over the years are do these small studies, which lack the power to have statistical significance. They have all sorts of biases built into them. And yet we laud these doctors because they've actually performed a study. But in my opinion, when I ask, you know, uh, my colleagues, when they ask for studies, I say, can you name a couple of the best studies in our field that you've relied on that's really changed your practice? Could you just name a couple studies? They go blank. They can't name a single study that has affected. Now, you know, we could go back to finasteride minoxidil studies 20 years ago that were published. That's different. I'm talking about actual studies within hair restoration surgery are almost non-existent. So what do we do? So in my opinion, that whole bottom layer of that pyramid, that anecdotal area, there's high quality anecdotal information and there's low quality anecdotal information. And like you said, to me, the source is everything. If I find out you're doing something, if I find out that Ron Shapiro is doing something, someone I know has lots of experience, integrity, intelligence, that to me uh, means a tremendous amount if I'm thinking about adopting a new treatment. If it's someone I don't know, I'm not going to disregard it, but I'm going to do a lot more research on it and try and learn about it. So there's actually a way, not all anecdotal information is of the same quality. There is a way, I think, to tease that out and say, okay, this is higher quality anecdotal information. This is lower quality. This one clearly looks like quackery to me. Uh, so I think we can be smart enough to use anecdotal information to advance our practices. I agree. And of course, when we're talking about surgical technique, you're totally correct. There is no way to do a, a real proper study because there's just too many biases. When it comes to you know, PRP and exosomes and stem cells, I think it's possible, and partly because there's an economic motive for some company that's making a device or a product to do that. To bring a new drug to market costs somewhere between 100 and $300 million. So no doctor has that kind of money. If they did, they certainly wouldn't spend it on proving something works better than the other way. But hopefully if a company that makes an exosome product or a PRP product, if they really want to prove it, then they spend the extra money to get that done. And then we can have a high level study. Otherwise, you're right. We, it's just very, very difficult to do. So the, we do the best we can. And again, if you say, look, you did, you did a, a suturing technique in, in your last five patients that worked better than the previous ones, that's, that's practically nonsense in terms of science. But again, that means a lot to a person like me who I'm immediately going to try that.